It wasn't um, completely unexpected. I was of the view that it would be very surprising if you ever had a mechanism in nature that was 100%. Biology never seems to be so clear-cut. What's in the next issue of the Embo Journal? Find out on the internet. That snappy call and response, complete with an enthusiastic exclamation mark, are from an ad in the September 1st, 1995 issue of the Embo Journal. If you were not sure how to find the journal on this internet thing, you could use any one of the brand new search engines like Yahoo and AltaVista. The issue included a landmark paper by Tracy Bryan and Roger Riddell and their collaborators, an article which contradicted conventional wisdom in the oncogenesis field. Their paper, entitled Telomere Elongation in Immortal Human Cells Without Detectable Telomerase Activity, established the existence of mechanisms for alternative lengthening of telomeres in human cells. It would have profound consequences for the understanding and treatment of tumors. Brian and Riddell's paper was chosen by Embo Journal editors and the Scientific Advisory Board to integrate the journal's 40th anniversary collection. Welcome to the Embo Podcast. In this study, we examined the association between telomerase and immortalization, a modest enough goal that would take a very interesting turn. The study's lead author, Roger Riddell, also ended up somewhere he did not expect. I've always had trouble making up my mind as to what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and when I originally went to university to enroll, um, I headed off in the morning on enrollment day, uh, convinced I was going to enroll in the arts faculty and changed my mind at the last minute and enrolled in science instead. And um, so in my first year of university, I did uh, biology and chemistry and physics and mathematics and um, t sort of took the higher level um, subjects in mathematics and physics. And so at that stage, I was convinced I wanted to be a mathematician or a physicist. And then during that year, I became very interested in biology. I found that very fascinating. And um, for some reason, which still eludes me, I switched um, to medicine at the end of first year science. Um, I, I guess I regarded medicine as a biology um, uh, discipline. And um, uh, so I then did my medical undergraduate training. So at the university I was attending, medicine was studied straight out of high school. Um, so it was a six year uh, degree course without a prerequisite um, of another degree. But I also had the opportunity during the medical uh, degree to take a year out and do a full-time uh, year of research. And uh, that was in biochemistry. I found it absolutely fascinating. I absolutely loved it and you know, made a mental note that if I ever got the opportunity to do that again, um, I'd, I'd really like to do some research. So finished medical school, um, did physician training, um, then did uh, sort of board certification training in medical oncology. I did that at the um, Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research, which in those days had a branch in Sydney. And 
they had a policy that the medical oncology trainees um, could do a PhD um, in in basic uh, cancer research. And I took that opportunity and essentially I've never gone back to, to clinical medicine. And it wasn't a choice that I made at some point in time because I absolutely loved practicing um, uh, medical oncology. But I, when I finished my PhD, I went then to the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland um, to do a postdoc. And um, then one thing led to another. I set up my own lab back in Sydney. Um, and so I've just never gone back to um, to clinical medicine, even though I've kept my um, license current. Riddell's PhD at the Ludwig was on cell cycle control in breast cancer, including work on differential sensitivity to tamoxifen. I then went uh, to do a postdoc in essentially molecular carcinogenesis at um, in, in the lab of Kurt Harris. And the reason for that was that at that time, there was the so-called two-oncogene hypothesis that had been it was high-profile publications from the Weinberg lab um, and from Earl Rooley, um, um, basically postulating that it required a combination of two oncogenes to transform a normal cell into a cancer cell. And that didn't seem right to me. It just didn't seem to fit um, with the epidemiology of cancer, uh, the epidemiologists were predicting that the number of hits required um, to transform a normal cell into a cancer cell would was more like six or eight or ten. And so I took the opportunity in Kurt Harris's lab um, uh, to study that in human cells. Um, so uh, Kurt had invested very heavily um, in setting up human cell cultures, particularly epithelial cultures as being most relevant to, to carcinogenesis. Um, and so I was testing the two oncogene hypothesis um, in human cells. What I found in the course of the postdoc studies um, with Kurt Harris was essentially that it was not possible to transform a normal cell into a cancer cell without first immortalizing the cells. So I spent a lot of my postdoc developing immortalized cultures and mostly using SV40T antigen um, as a method for immortalization. Um, so, I mean, the sequence of events is um, when the cells are transformed with the T antigen, although more accurately the, the SV40 early region, because it's not just the large T antigen, small T at least as well, um, and maybe some other functions. Um, the cells have an extended lifespan and then they undergo um, you know, some additional event and they become immortalized. And it was those immortalized cells which could then be transformed um, into malignant cells by the addition of oncogenes. So that led me to become very interested in immortalization. And when I set up my own lab back in Sydney at the Children's Medical Research Institute, um, the focus of my lab was understanding the molecular genetics 
of, of immortalization. And um, the discovery was made um, that um, telomerase um, appeared to be important in this process. Um, of course, there are other things that are important as well. Um, loss of uh, tumor suppressor genes, the P53 and the RB pathway. Um, but a key additional event appeared to be um, telomere maintenance, activation of a telomere maintenance mechanism um, by telomerase. So we set about um, trying to understand what was happening um, in the telomerase step. And my then um, PhD student, Tracy Bryan, went off to Jerry Shea's lab um, in Texas, uh, Southwestern um, uh, Medical Center, um, to learn the newly developed telomerase assay. Dr. Riddell's then PhD student, Tracy Bryan, is now professor and head of the cell biology unit at the Children's Medical Research Institute at the University of Sydney. Her interest in cancer research began when she was a university student, when Bryan wrote a letter to one of the world's leading cancer researchers. As a naive undergraduate, I decided that I uh, would like to go out and uh, explore the world um, and the science going on out there. So I wrote to, to uh, Bert Vogelstein uh, at Johns Hopkins, not having any idea as to how famous he was at the time when I wrote to him. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to, to Baltimore and he, he said, kindly said, uh, yes, sure, come and work for me as a research assistant. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to Baltimore that I realized just how famous Bert is uh, in the field of, of cancer genetics. Um, but that was an amazing time. That was um, a really uh, exciting time in the early 90s. We were discovering the APC gene, the importance of P53 and so on. I actually asked um, Bert afterwards, and in fact, uh, Ken Kinsler, who I worked very closely with as well, who's become uh, quite famous alongside Bert, I asked them afterwards, you know, what prompted you to to hire a naive undergraduate from Australia? Um, and they, so I'd put on my CV hobbies, bushwalking, uh, which is hiking in Australian. <laughs> but they said that they were so intrigued by someone who bushwalked uh, that they needed to meet me. So, so whether that's true or not, I don't know, but uh, that's what they said. I went to the Lawn Cancer Conference in 1992. So this is um, one of Australia's premier international cancer conferences. It's held in Lawn, Victoria every year uh, to this day, in fact. Um, so I went there with the purpose of meeting uh, people in the cancer research field that I could potentially ask about, about um, uh, doing a PhD with. Uh, and that's where I met Roger Riddell. Uh, and chatted to him at the meeting and then afterwards went to visit his lab. Uh, completely loved what he was doing. Uh, he was one of the few people uh, in the field working on senescence and immortalization back then. Uh, so it was kind of an outpost of uh, cancer research. Um, but I found it fascinating and particularly the very first time I heard about uh, the telomere shortening hypothesis was in Roger's office uh, when I was visiting him for the first time or possibly the second time, because we were already talking about potential PhD projects. Uh, and he's like, well, you know, there's this hypothesis that telomeres shorten 
uh, and this is what determines cellular lifespan in human cells, uh, and that overcoming this is necessary for uh, cells to become immortal. Uh, and um, and they have this enzyme called telomerase that helps them overcome this. Um, so I thought that was the most fascinating thing I'd ever heard um, and decided that, yeah, that's what I wanted to do my PhD on. So this was um, early 93 uh, when I started my PhD. Uh, so human telomerase had been um, pub- uh, identified by Greg Marin in 1989 uh, and then Chris Counter and Sylvia Bachetti published a landmark paper in 1992, so just before I started, and that was in EMBO actually, uh, where they showed that uh, in vitro immortalized cell lines uh, experience telomere shortening uh, until they reach crisis, and then the cells that emerge from crisis uh, turn on telomerase um, and become immortal. Uh, so this was in, I forget how many, but two or three in vitro immortalized cell lines. Uh, and the strength of Roger's lab is that he'd spent, uh, you know, most of his postdoc years and, and um, subsequent years uh, generating a lot of immortal cell lines, uh, and which he had pre-crisis cells for and post-crisis cells frozen down. Uh, so the idea of my PhD project was to uh, uh, pull all of these cells out of the freezer, examine them pre-crisis and post-crisis and see is it in fact universal uh, that telomerase is reactivated um, during crisis. Now, uh, I was also a, a still somewhat naive student, um, and I was expecting, so Roger says he wasn't expecting this, but I was expecting uh, that we would find that, yes, indeed, they all activate telomerase. You know, we, we reconfirm Chris Counter's findings on a bigger scale, uh, and it wouldn't be very exciting. Uh, and I was hoping to move on to more exciting things later in my PhD. Uh, but I thought, okay, if Roger really wants me to do this, I'll do this first project um, and just see how it goes. So I had spent some time not knowing that Jerry Shea's lab was working on the technique. I had spent some time in the early part of my PhD trying to develop a similar technique based on PCR. Uh, now, I didn't um, think of the key thing that they thought of that made it work. Uh, which is to use a non-telomeric substrate uh, so that when you do the PCR with a telomeric reverse primer, you don't just get primer dimers. Um, so they were using um, a, a sequence, actually, that Greg Marin first described in his paper that's a non-telomeric sequence that has just enough of a telomere repeat at the very end. I think it's three nucleotides um, homologous to telomeres. Uh, the telomeres can use it as a substrate, but then you can also PCR the products. Uh, so I didn't think of that. I was trying, and I was just getting primer dimers all the time. Uh, and eventually Roger um, convinced me to, to stop trying. Uh, but about the same time, we heard of Jerry Shea's um, successful development of what's now the trap assay. Uh, and Jerry very kindly offered to teach me this assay before it was published. Uh, so I went over to Dallas and spent oh, I, a couple of weeks, I think, in Jerry's lab, lab are learning how to do the trap assay um, before they published it, uh, which was invaluable for the project um, because, yeah, it enabled us to to see for sure uh, that these cells didn't have telomerase even with a very sensitive assay. There were technical alternatives and um, um, and that was essentially the direct telomerase assay, uh, which doesn't have a PCR step like the trap assay does. And 
The problem with that assay is that it just requires, it, it's quite insensitive. It's accurate, but it's quite insensitive. So you need very large numbers of cells um, in order to get a clear signal. So it's just not very suitable for routine use. Um, so the trap assay was a really major advance um, for the field. Um, just opened up a whole lot of studies that previously were just technically not impossible, but very difficult to do. So at that stage, we had a, quite a large collection of cells that we'd immortalized in vitro um, and you know, all sorts of other, uh, we had them before and after immortalization and we'd done hybridization experiments, you know, hybridizing various immortalized cells together um, to look for complementation um, of, of senescence. And so we had a lot of cellular reagents available for studying telomerase um, 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 already there. And um, Tracy made the discovery that some of them um, had no, some of the immortalized cultures had no telomerase. Well, I thought that there was something um, uh, unique happening because before I'd gone to Dallas, I'd actually already measured the telomere lengths of all of the same set of cell lines. Um, and uh, we had found that a subset of the cell lines had what appeared to be really long telomeres on, on, the, on the blots. Um, and when I was in Jerry's lab um, developing the, the film for the, for the trap assay, it was done with radioactivity in those days, uh, I was looking at the names of the cells that seemed to not have any activity and thinking they seem, they seem familiar. It seems like it's the same ones. So back in those days, there was no email. I had to fax Roger um, saying, can you check my lab books? So he got, a, got someone in the lab to check my lab books. And yes, indeed, it was exactly the same cell lines that had the really long telomeres. Um, that were lacking telomerase activity. Uh, so at that point, we thought, okay, there is most likely something interesting going on here. Uh, but of course, when I got back to the lab in Australia, um, Roger is a super careful scientist. And, uh, you know, I like to think that, that some of that rubbed off while I was a student in his lab as well. Uh, and of course, we needed to rule out all the potential uh, artifactual explanations that we could think of. So, uh, you know, inhibitors of telomerase, inhibitors of TAC, um, possible RNAs in those particular samples. Uh, so, yeah, we spent um, uh, about a, at least a year, I think, doing the control experiments just to convince ourselves um, that there was a non-telomerase telomere lengthening mechanism happening. It wasn't... Um, completely unexpected because I was of the view that it would be very surprising if you ever had um, a mechanism in nature that was 100%. Biology never seems to be so clear-cut and, you know, sort of unidimensional. So it was not at all surprised to see that some of them didn't obey the rule or what others thought was, was the, the rule for immortalization. In 1997, two years after their Embo Journal paper on immortalized cell lines, Tracy Bryan and Roger Riddell published a key follow-up paper in Nature Medicine called Evidence for an Alternative Mechanism for Maintaining Telomere Length in Human Tumors and Tumor-Derived Cell Lines. That was the paper that really addressed the 
possibility that it was just an SV40 artifact. Um, and or a phenomenon, I should say, not not an artifact, but a, f- a phenomenon of um, of SV40, um, uh, because there we were able to find a number of tumor derived cell lines that had the same uh, telomeric hallmarks and behavior um, as the SV40 transformed telomerase negative cells. Um, so we obviously we could do the the in vitro studies. Um, um, you know, follow the cells long term. Um, if there were cell lines uh, with the tumors, um, it's really a snapshot in time. Um, uh, so, uh, with a real tumor, real human tumor, it's not possible um, to show that the telomeres are maintained over time. Um, uh, but that that was the key point of the nineteen ninety seven paper that this phenomenon originally described primarily in SV40 transformed fibroblast also occurred in cancer cell lines and in real cancers. That partially allayed some of the concerns, I guess, because some of the people in the field, that's what they were, that's what they were saying. This is all an in vitro artifact. Um, so the fact that we were able to demonstrate that it was happening in cancer samples as well, um, I think, uh, helped a little bit, but then there were also a lot of people still saying that uh, there is likely some technical artifact why you're not detecting telomerase in those samples as well. Um, so I, I recall that it did take quite a number of years actually before the field as a whole um, started to believe uh, the existence of the human cells without telomerase. This paper comes at the back of a, another paper, which is the one from Jerry Shea's lab, in nature where they say telomerase is in all tumors, right? And they did find all cells in those tumors. So they don't talk about it. In the previous paper in nature, they say almost all tumors have telomerase and they don't really think about the ones that do not. And, and these guys, uh, Tracy et al., they, they, they looked at the exception, and the exception is so important. That was Miguel Godinho Ferreira's take on Brian et al.'s EMBO journal paper. Godinho Ferreira, who was not involved in the study, works on telomeres and telomerase at the Institute for Research on Cancer and Aging in Nice. As Dr. Riddell said, biology never seems to be clear-cut, and exceptions are the rule. But one does generally expect exceptions to be relatively rare. 15 of the 35 immortalized cell lines described in their EMBO journal paper were telomerase negative. We asked Dr. Riddell what could account for such a high frequency. Um, so most of the studies had been done with um, cancer cell lines um, and cancer cell lines most likely that grow quite well in vitro. Um, so there are a number of reasons why I think we found such a high frequency, high prevalence. One of them was um, a lot of the studies that we'd done on immortalization were in fibroblasts. And it turns out that um, immortalization of uh, cells of mesenchymal origin is much more frequently via ALT, the alternative lengthening of telomeres, non-telomerase mechanism, um, than in epithelial cells. So that, that was one 
major factor. Um, there, there may have been others, but I think that was the main one. I've asked Roger long ago whether um, he would envisage that there would be initial, in the initial clone, when telomeres are short, potential offshoots that would be both alt and telomerase positive that then would compete and that because alt leads more to genome instability that telomerase positive clones would win in the end and that's why there are so many more cancers that are telomerase positive so i myself i would envisage that in the very beginning you have all offshoots in a third minus situation sorry in a, in a tumor that still didn't reactivate telomerase and all these offshoots would include alt but then the alt, because of being more unstable, because they're based on DNA repair mechanisms that create instability, they would be outcompeted by a normalizing term. At the very beginning, it was found out that alt, when it's born, it doesn't born, it's not born equally. So there are several tumors that have a more propensity for alt than others. And these are soft tissue tumors, sarcomism, and so on. Um, we do not know why. And sincerely, it's we're far from still understanding immediately why. But um, I, it is what I was saying that um, you would have offshoots of third positive and alt competing. This, I mean, if you do inhibit telomerase, it's likely that there aren't alt types coming everywhere. And and that could well be because of uh, tissue specific. And yes, that has all to do with epigenetics and the telomeres in those tissues that may be allowing for more DNA repair in some others that do not. It could be argued that Brian and Riddell's paper disproved the absolute requirement for one mechanism of telomere maintenance. But at the time of publication, the molecular basis for alternative telomere lengthening itself was nebulous. The paper was seminal. It's been cited over 1,700 times. But would it get stuck in peer-reviewed purgatory today, enduring multiple variants of the fabled what is the mechanism referee request? Hartmut Vodermeyer is a senior scientific editor at the Embo Journal. Hartmut joined the journal in 2006 after doing a PhD and postdoc in the fields of ubiquitination and chromosome segregation. He mainly handles papers on protein modification and proteolysis, cell cycle and cell division, and genome stability and dynamics. Would such a paper still be published in the Embo Journal today? This is always a difficult decision. The Embo Journal is a broad and a general journal publishing mainly comprehensive full-length articles rather than short letters. So usually we and also our referees are looking for studies that report not just an interesting observation or phenotype, but also reveals a certain level of insight into the underlying molecular or cellular processes. But this also goes the other way around. For example, a purely structural or biochemical observation may also need to be complemented with a substantial amount of functional analysis. That said, there can be purely descriptive studies that nevertheless hold a fundamental significance Case in point, the study by Brian et al. Um, or as another reciprocal example from our anniversary collection. The first purely biochemical description of Lubac, a ubiquitin ligase producing linear ubiquitin chains back in 2006. Here, Kiri Sacco et al. Had, had a purely biochemical observation, but only when the physiological function became clear more than three years later. 
Lubeck turned out to have major roles in NF-kappa-B and TNF-alpha signaling, as well as in antimicrobial defenses. So the key is to recognize the potential importance in a study of that sort, and this takes experienced editors who continue to go out to scientific conferences and who are aware of the developments and open questions in their fields. What also helps, definitely in these cases, are prudent editorial advisors and far-sighted referees. I would love to find those reviews and, um, and have a look back over what happened there. My recollection is that it was a relatively smooth process and that the review of that paper by Embo Journal um, was rigorous but quite fair. And, you know, there were technical issues that were important to address and we were very keen to address them to rule out potential artefacts. Um, so I don't recall any major problems with the EMBO journal review, um, you know, apart from needing to really convince um, the reviewers that we'd ruled out potential artefacts to the, you know, to a reasonable extent. It's also worth noting that EMBO Press launched EMBO Reports in 2000 a journal that is particularly interested in striking observations that may not have a fully elucidated mechanism. If you're interested in knowing more, EMBO Reports scientific editor Esther Schnapp explained what the journal is looking for in a paper on the EMBO podcast episode, A COVID Clue at Chromosome Ends. Coincidentally, it's also about telomeres. But back to our story. Post-peer review and publication naysayers remained well there was there was quite a lot of resistance actually so contrary to the uh, you know in contrast to the the fair process of review um by embo journal and other papers uh, other journals that we we submitted um follow-up papers to um at the there was quite a lot of resistance in the field um for example there was a view that was very widely held that what we had shown was really uh, unique to SV40 transform cells, or that it might be an in vitro transformation phenomenon only, um, and that it didn't occur in real tumours. Um, and so they were the issues that we addressed in subsequent papers. Um, and then there was even after telomerase, oh, the TERT gene was, was cloned and it was possible to activate telomerase um, in cell lines artificially. Um, there was a study that was done that, that showed that, you know, a particular cell line, which is alt positive, when it was then transformed with telomerase, it went from being non-tumorigenic in nude mice to being tumorigenic. So for quite some time, there was a view that, um, you know, even if all does occasionally occur in tumours, then it's pretty benign. They're not real tumours. So <laughs> there was a, sort of a succession of fallback positions that were being expressed in the field, you know, maybe, you know starting with SV40 artefact through to, well, maybe it does occur in tumours, but it's not, not of any consequence. Um um, so it, that, that, that took a number of years. Uh, we presented it at um, 
uh, one of the first, in fact, I think it was the first telomerase meeting that was held in Hawaii uh, in 1996. We presented some of that work uh, and it was already published by then. Um, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of people did not believe that it was actually true. Uh, they must. They thought there must be some artifactual explanation that we hadn't uncovered yet, uh, and that continued for some time, actually, which is surprising because before we had described this, it had had been described in yeast. Uh, so Ginger Zakian and and Vicky Lundblad's labs had both described recombinational mechanisms of telomere lengthening in yeast that don't have telomerase, uh, which we had mentioned actually in in the Embo paper. Um, so it certainly wasn't unprecedented, uh, but I think um, because of the implications that it has for potential cancer treatment based on telomerase inhibitors, um, I think that's why there was a lot of uh, stubbornness in the field, I, I guess, initially uh, to the idea. Uh, in yeast, right now, we've, we know that there are about five alts. And, um, yeah, so from the very beginning, from the studies of, of um, it, so telomerase was found out in yeast, uh, by Jack Schroster and, 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 and Vicky Lamblatt by, uh, removing telomerase. And what they found out was that, yeah, you always got survivors. And what were those survivors? Um, later studies by Vicky and, 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 and Ginger Zaken, um, they found out that it was a recombinational based method that would happen at the ends of chromosomes. And yes, ALT was then equipped, shown to be, ALT in human cells was shown to be a, a similar mechanism to happen in yeast. The telomerase can be viewed as a DNA repair mechanism competing with others. And if you don't have telomerase, well, you shouldn't use the other ones, but sometimes you do. If you do non-homologous end joining, you end up pretty fast because the, there is genome instability ensuing. But the other one is a solution for many things, which is homologous recombination. And homologous recombination comes in many different flavors. And on, one of them is quite successful, which is this uh, one that, Alt, uh, that Roger has described, which is break-induced replication. And yeasts have been doing this, yeah, as a survivor mode. So there, there were two major survivor modes at the time when they were found, type ones and type twos. Um, alt corresponds to the type twos, which is a piece of DNA invades. Uh, so the short telomere invades a longer telomere. And then by this invasion recombination, that this is the first step that, that, that is the recombination part then DNA replication machinery uses the template strand to extend the short telomere, thereby making a long telomere. So the thing about breaking this replication is that you don't make necessarily a long because you can insert at the end. So you could make short too. So as Roger highlighted from the very beginning, ALT is not long telomeres. ALT are heterogeneously telomeres from short to long, and that creates also instability. So alt cells are not a total stable solution because they still have short telomeres amongst them, and they have to take away the, the signaling part of the DNA uh, 
um, repair uh, of the DNA damage, which short alt cells have. The 1994 science article from Nam Kim, Jerry Shea, and collaborators, the paper that described the TRAP essay, concluded that, quote, Expression of telomerase in almost all advanced malignancies tested suggests that immortal cells are likely required to maintain tumor growth, end quote. That painted a big, bright bullseye on telomerase for drug development in oncology. ALT presented a major obstacle for telomerase-targeting drugs. To this day, no telomerase inhibitors have been approved for cancer treatment. Of course, ALT opened up therapeutic possibilities of its own. We believed so. Um, and I, I think that's still a very strong possibility, although, you know, in 2022, um, we still do not have an alt drug in the clinic, um, which I think is disappointing, um, you know, after all of these years. However, right now, it is a very hot target uh, for the development of, of targeted therapies. Um, and there are a number of labs and, and companies that are working on that right now. So I am very hopeful that we'll see some alt-directed um, cancer therapeutics in the not-too-distant future. One of the things that I think is really important um, is that inhibiting the telomere maintenance mechanism per se, so either telomerase or alt, is unlikely to work very quickly. So this is something which has really been hypothesized right from the beginning, that a drug that inhibits telomere maintenance is going to take a long time to act, during which time um, the, the cancer cells have the opportunity to just keep on doubling many times over. So what we really need to find uh, to exploit the telomere maintenance mechanisms is some vulnerability that is created in the cancer cell because of the genetic changes that are required to turn that mechanism on. And we demonstrated that in principle, I think for the first time, by showing that many alt cell lines are vulnerable to infection with a you know, particular um, uh, DNA tumor virus, so a cytolytic virus. Um, and that was hypothesis-driven based on, the, on what we knew about the, mechanisms that the mechanism that is required to allow the ALT mechanism to become activated. And I think that type of approach, um, so not necessarily cytolytic viruses, but exploiting the vulnerability that's, um, that accompanies whatever genetic changes are required to switch ALT on, and it's not going to be the same in every ALT cell line or cancer. Um, um, I think that's where development of therapeutics needs to go. I don't think the idea of uh, telomerase inhibition as, as a uh, therapeutic is necessarily dead in the water either. Um, the one molecule that's been through clinical trials is an oligonucleotide-based um, uh, uh, drug, which has had problems, um, but uh, we think that that's mostly due to the fact that it's an oligonucleotide rather than that it's a telomerase inhibitor. Uh, so there is, it's been an extremely tough enzyme to design small molecule inhibitors against. Um, 
Uh, but we're now involved in some work with some exciting small molecule inhibitors of telomerase that are looking promising. ALT appears to be a simpler problem because it is based in DNA repair. And we have a lot of drugs that act on DNA repair itself. So if ALT depends on homologous recombination, so break-induced replication, which is a type of initiates with homologous recombination, we have drugs that would inhibit this part. But it would require that you do a double hitter, that you would go into the ideas of synthetic lethality because you need to both inhibit telomerase and inhibit homologous recombination at the same time to prevent these two. And again, the studies in yeast do show that it's possible to inhibit certain types of repair mechanisms. Tracy Bryan defended her PhD in 1997. After a postdoc with Tom Check at the University of Colorado in Boulder, she returned to Sydney and the Children's Medical Research Institute in 2001 to establish her own lab. Roger Riddell currently serves as the director of the CMRI. I'm still working on uh, telomere maintenance and particularly on ALT. Um, so since that 1995 paper, um, uh, ALT has really dominated the interest of my lab. It's not been the only interest, but, um, uh, you know, we successively, you know, in addition to the, the tumour and the tumour cell line uh, paper, we looked at mechanism, we found, you know, diagnostic markers for ALT. Um, so there was the ALT-associated PML bodies. It was quite a surprising finding in 1999. Um, and then my then... Uh, Postdoc Jeremy Henson um, found that alt cells are characterized by the presence of partially single-stranded circles of telomeric DNA, uh, and, and this turns out to be a very robust marker of of alt activity. Um, we've had a number of studies that looked at the mechanism. Um, uh, we had a paper in two thousand that showed that there was. Uh, recombination-mediated copying occurring um, uh, long-range, so between non-homologous um, telomeres. Um, subsequent paper showing that it occurs between sister chromatids. Um, uh, a whole variety of, of studies looking at ALT um, in, in various tumour types and the effect on prognosis. Um, so in most cases, ALT um, is is associated with a very poor outcome. Um, it's poor poor prognosis, but very occasionally. So in glioblastoma, um, the the tumours that have got alt uh, do better than the others. Um, uh, so so um, uh, you know, to this day, um, we we're still studying various aspects of of alt, um, and of course, I'm also interested in the possibility of developing therapeutics that are targeting ALT. So I haven't actually worked on ALT since my PhD. Uh, I've been working on telomerase, in fact. Um, so that was a, a, a decision that Roger and I made strategically when I started my own lab right next door to his, um, that, you know, we wouldn't both work on the same thing or I'd be forever seen as his PhD student. Our major interest is actually in the process of how telomerase gets recruited to telomeres. Uh, so we have some interesting data around that involving the DNA damage pathways AT, um, modulated by ATM and ATR. They're both um, very important for telomerase recruitment to telomeres. Uh, 
replication stress um, is involved in bringing telomerase to telomeres. Uh, so we're um, uh, finding that telomerase seems to be uh, a cellular response to, to replication stress and cancer cells surviving replication stress. Uh, so, so telomerase is one of the, the cell survival uh, techniques um, that cancer cells are using. Um, and the replication stress is heavily involved in getting telomerase to the telomere. Uh, so that's the major um, focus of, of the, the uh, cancer-related work in my lab at the moment. Uh, but we're also doing an increasing amount of work on short telomere syndromes, or what's now called telomere biology disorders. Uh, so we're finding that all the, the uh, biochemical insights about telomerase that we and, and many other labs around the world have accumulated over the last uh, couple of decades proving to be extremely useful in determining whether patient mutations are deleterious or not, uh, and therefore providing molecular diagnoses for, for patients with mutations in telomerase subunits specifically. The proper maintenance of chromosome ends had been recognized as an important component of genome stability at least as far back as the writings of Barbara McClintock. It's achieved through a variety of strategies by different taxa, many of which do not rely on telomerase. Telomerase itself is an oddity, an answer to the nerdy pub quiz question, is there such a thing as a eukaryotic reverse transcriptase? Even in organisms with telomerase, some tissues or developmental stages may use alternative telomere lengthening mechanisms. The importance of the study was further highlighted in our poll of the editorial board. Our advisor, Jan Karlsheder of the Salk Institute in La Jolla, um, found this paper very influential. Actually, his lab later found that the nematodes, the elegans, is the first organism that can maintain viability solely based on ALT. This surprising discovery was also published in the Embo Journal uh, back in 2012. Whether in normal tissues you would also go into an ALT elongation mode, and it hasn't been observed. However, there have been reports that in um, early embryogenesis, which is when telomeres are supposed to be reset, in mouse, which has very long telomeres and a specific setup, um, they would elongate via ALT. So it could be not necessarily tissue-specific, but there have been reports during development that this could have been the case. And uh, yeah, why would you allow for elongation in a specific mode of uh, repair type rather than telomerase is, is unknown. There are multiple types of surviving without telomerase. That's my major point. And the staple one is just having longer telomeres to start with. So I think that um, you could break it down as a simple way of if you have long telomeres to start with, you can have cancers without any breaks because they're long to start with. So you have to think that in the mouse, they still have the knock telomeres, knockout mouse, they still have cancer. So the break doesn't seem to be required there. And it's not all, it's just long telomeres that are enough. Yeah. So the, the, and the other point is that there is um, a Goldilocks principle that was proposed by Lee Harrington, which is still an interesting one. And this one is that um, when telomeres are short, 
you 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 have problems, right? And and you have to make them so without cancer, right? So I'm just talking about normal organisms. If telomeres are too short, you have a problem immediately because your cells don't proliferate. So and if your telomeres are too long, and that's something that it needs to be experimentally done. If your telomeres are too long, you're cancer prone. So there is a point for each species, the Goldilocks point, where you have to have your telomeres around them. So if you're born with longer telomeres, it's not that you're going to live an uncomplicated life. It's that you're more likely to have diseases that need the breaks of telomere shortening. And if you're born with too short telomeres, you're going to have diseases that need cell proliferation. So that's another idea. To find out more about current research in the labs of Roger Riddell and Tracy Bryan, visit the Children's Medical Research Institute page at cmrigenesforgenes.org.au. The first genes is as in blue genes, and the second genes is as in genetics. Miguel Godin Fejeda's lab page is at ircan.org. That's I-R-C-A-N.org. You can find Brian and Riddell's alt paper and other classic studies at the Embo Journal 40th Anniversary Collection page. They're all free to read. Thank you for listening to the Embo Podcast. Mm-hmm.